0: Listening to the Positive Professional Podcast with your host, me, Tracy Avon. This podcast is a weekly conversation about all things mental health, self-care, and wellness. And there'll be sprinkles of positivity, mindfulness, and guided meditations. Welcome back. To season four episode 10. Today I'm going to be talking with the owner of Orchard Blue Counseling Services. Here we are doing an interview uh, with a friend who I've known for some time, <laughs> Serene Prince and point of transparency, Serene and I went to high school together. I am not going to say what year But we both went to high school together. We are from Queens, New York, and it is amazing that we both found the path of doing clinical social work and helping people. So this is Social Work History Month, and I wanted to interview social workers, clinicians who I think are doing amazing work in our community. Um, So with that, we are going to start to interview you, Serene. My first question is, what made you go into the field of social work? Why did you want to become a social worker?
1: Huh, that may be a loaded answer, but I'll try to give a short (laughs) answer here. I initially did not go to college to be a social worker. Same here. Same here. So yeah. To be a computer programmer. It had aligned with culturally what, you know, my family, they are from Antigua and Barbuda. So in the Caribbean, generally, you're either going to be a doctor, a lawyer, maybe an an accountant. So those are the first three, followed by being a nurse. And so I was like, oh, I'll be a computer programmer. I like computers. That did not work out well for me. (laughs) So... I said, well, this is too hard. What can be the easiest thing? And so I chose social work. Um, Not so easy, you know. And so I went into social work and then I really began to um, grow a love for it. It no longer became the easy degree that I obtained, but more or less self introspection is what started to happen really looking at myself, really looking at those around me, culturally speaking, the development of persons, how they function. And to let me add that, I was already working within social service. So I was a forced to care caseworker as well, in addition to going to school for social work. And so I initially started off getting a bachelor's in psychology at York College and then I went on several years later to Yeshiva World School of Social Work to get my graduate degree in social work. I love it. It is an amazing career. It has so many avenues that one can take, and I'm thrilled to be a black social worker. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, black social workers, black clinicians
1: matter. <laughs> So
0: I know you said you worked in child welfare, so you have your private practice. Now I see the great work that you were doing. So my first question is, what made you transition from working right for an agency to saying I not only want to have my own private practice, but I want to start my own business. And then if you can please explain the great work that your organization is doing. I know you do work here in the States, as well as in Antigua. Yes, please share one.
1: <laughs> yes, um, this is the exciting part. Uh, in late 2019, while working as a program director at a child welfare agency, I started, excuse me, Orchid Blue Counseling. And it really came from just continuously seeing the lack of compassionate, in quality care for black and brown people in the communities. There was a tendency of blaming the parent oftentimes for the child's non, you know, compliant non, you know, medication compliance or the child not meeting the weight goal gains in just a number of things. And I was advocating more so on a racial line, over anything else, because there was clearly a difference in the way that these systems, these providers were interacting. And then to add on to that, oftentimes mental health care was not part of, let's say, a discharge summary, or there wasn't necessarily a referral to mental health support. It was, here's the treatment plan, the medical treatment plan for your child, do this and come back in three months. There was no exploration of how is the mom doing postpartum with the infant baby who has a chronic medical condition. There was no exploring postpartum even three to five years later, um, as it could impact the mother's mental health being as well as the paternal, the father's mental health being. So I said, okay, I am going to take on courage, open up Orchid Blue Counseling. As you know, several months later the pandemic happened and i said to myself what did i get myself into <laughs> it was just supposed to be three or four clients and i was going to keep my day job and keep my benefits and keep it moving yes well <laughs> not what happened it burst at the seams the you know i wouldn't i don't want to generalize it but there were more black people as you know tracy that were seeking mental support because the symptoms, could, you know, of anxiety, depression—it just no longer could be ignored anymore. Correct. And, and you know, in conjunction with there being a lot of deaths surrounding us and grief and loss, um, that happened very quickly. And so, I find myself working two full-time jobs: my Orchard Blue counseling, my private mental practice, and being a program director at the child welfare agency. And I decided that I would let go of my program director job and really focus on Orchard Blue Counseling. Orchard Blue Counseling really and truly is designed to provide quality, culturally affirming psychotherapy to children and teens. I am a child and teen expert and holding a safe space for Black Indigenous people of color. And so we have grown, um, little by little. Um, we're staffed with six, you know, therapists per se. So out of those six, there are two clinical social work students and four licensed psychotherapists who all see a combination of children from ages seven and up. Now, as you know, I also expanded and I, um, have a, counseling business in Antigua and Barbuda. That's where my parents are from. And that's called Counseling and Consulting with Serene. And that was sort of birthed from my love for Antigua and Barbuda. Also, in my visits here and having on the therapeutic lens, because I don't think we ever take it off, I just saw more and more a need for there to be support and aid to fight against the stigma surrounding mental health. And when I say fight, I mean, just challenging the systems and the government to increase access to mental health care, uh, whether it's in the hospitals, in the communities, creating jobs for mental health counselors. And so I expanded that service here. And I know we may go into this. I also noticed that the way in which symptoms manifest for the Black Antigua Barbudans, who were quite a little different. And it also had pushed me to look at how it was also manifesting in the Black and Brown people, particularly Black people, even in New York, New Jersey, in the U.S., uh, where we service. And it had led me to the idea that the approach that I was taking was on the right path but more diving into the semantics of things looking at the ancestral traumas that they faced looking at how they were firing up the you know I know that there's a research surrounding epigenetics and so being in Antigua and Barbuda and having a business here really allowed me to focus on that and that I need to do a little bit more studying and and data collection, and continuing this path and journey. Yeah, I remember
0: when you when you pivoted. Because I remember when you were working at the agency and you started to start your practice. And I was like, "Yay, Serene, This is amazing." I have not yet pivoted myself, and it's going to be taking some, <laughs> some time before <laughs> I do that fully. So I keep my practice small but very intentional, as you know, like with um, mindfulness practices. When it comes to what I view and what I've seen, and I think you and I have talked about this, the conversation about mental health and how it's viewed and how sometimes it's used as an opportunity for a money grab. I am not going to go into a TED Talk fully on that, but <laughs> maybe that could be a part two of what you and I could talk about. But I wanted to know, since you, are, you have practices in New York and and well in the surrounding areas in in Antigua is it the same where it's this conversation about mental health there's tons of money being put into it but there's still a disconnect as far as people still having access to services is it the same are you seeing the same in Antigua
1: Well in Antigua and Barbuda they're not there yet they are maybe where we were mm, I'm going to say even in 2017, then that's just very recent. The pandemic really, I believe in the States, um, in New York and surroundings have really pushed us to really look at mental health and to engage in it. How do I say this carefully? And hmm. maybe not so, because I'm not really careful all the time. When you talk about the capitalism of black mental health because I'm going to say that because that's really and truly what Keep it is on it. naming ain't naming yes at there's a tendency which we see in you know like when you you know you're just scrolling through social media there's like an ad and there's a black person or maybe a clinician who's talking on behalf of a company that's not black owned and just really sort of they do great i mean the advertisement is wonderful i mean hey Kudos to the marketing team, but not understanding the way in which Black and Brown people need to be engaged carefully and not to create a space that's re-traumatizing or that sort of feeds into our own fears around trust and distrust with large systems. Because when they do damage, then for us, like yourself, Although you're keeping it small, it's still a practice that you're offering that shifting people's minds, bodies is all interconnected and how they engage with us. Right. And so. There's a tendency where the other the is colonial style. Right. It just looks very different as 2023 in which they were bringing these mental supports. And I do see that in the Caribbean. Right. Because it is happening um is happening in larger Caribbean countries than it is in Antigua Barbuda that's very small. The other piece to that is that there's a tendency and I'm not saying this is in New York but we once upon a time we were there that if there was someone that was other than black we were more willing to engage with it thinking that it would be better but it wasn't. And that's the same thing in the Caribbean. So I'm here, you would think, "Oh, Serena's doing great. She's just a descendant of Antigua Barbuda so they're like" Partly, I you know, persons do reach out to me because I don't have a strong connection, so they're not concerned with their privacy being leaked. But still, that colonialism and that trauma, and that conditioning, still will allow a very large—I call them big mental health pharma—to come in and sweep up and offer mental supports. And I'm sure they would be more than happy to receive it. And that's why I'm here. Because I want to make sure that they understand what they deserve, provide psychoeducation surrounding mental supports and treatments, and really use those terms decolonializing so that people have an awareness of that. So because it's, it's coming. So when it does come, it's been said and that their their approach to that hopefully will be a little different on a larger level.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you you, you touched on it because I think this is a larger conversation that needs to continually be had, especially with clinicians of color um, that are going into these spaces when black women are showing up. And, you know, we both have our LCSWs or we have specific training and we're still being questioned if whether or not we actually know the work that that we're doing to support And what happens is that we're not able to, you know, provide the access and support to people who need it because of colonialism. And again, everything is mental health, mental health, which is great. The the problem is that from what I see it, it's also not looking at proper policies and practices. Right. I think social workers should always right. There's different levels, right? There's micro, meso, macro. And. When I teach or when I supervise, I always tell social workers, please make sure that you know about policy. You should be just as sharp in policy that you are in diagnostics or social work skills or engagement or whatever it is that your practice is, because that's shaping how we are able to work with others. Mm -hmm. And from what I see, there's very different policies that are being brought up that are sometimes not in the best interest. I know you say so you specialize, you know, working with children. You know, I work with, you know, I work with younger children and young adults, teens during the day. And what I'm starting to see is a lot more, especially since the pandemic, with diagnoses of depression and anxiety, chick disorders, um, OCD. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing a lot more of those? Ref- are you getting a lot more referrals for the same?
1: We're getting a lot more referrals for anxiety, depression, self-harming, suicidal ideation. There is an obsessive component. And I do tie it into some sensory. I don't have any research, so I don't really like to talk about something unless I have data, but I, my data more or less is my experience and my assessment and observation. You And the work that you do, I'm sure you can contribute to that there's a sensory component involved. And yes. so a lot of children are receiving neurodivergent-like diagnosis of ADHD, autism on a spectrum disorder because of the sensory component. And that's the best diagnosis that aligns with what these children are exhibiting and presenting. So, yeah, I do sense that... It is overwhelming, I can imagine for you all, um, as well as for myself, it it can be overwhelming because we can have, you know, with not going into details, we can have three clients self-harming in the same week. And that's pretty intense even for the staff. And so when you talk about policies, also policies and ethics surrounding diagnosing and not rushing to... A diagnosis um, that's more or less designed. So I'll give you an example where there may be a diagnosis of like conduct disturbance or whatever have you. And I'm like, no, we're not, we're not doing that to the, ba- the black babies. Sorry. We so- need to do a
0: separate girl episode on that because especially in child welfare. And so that diagnosis is a, it's, it, it's a problem.
1: Yes. My body like goes into this. I'm like, Ooh, no, no, yes. No. So, you know, and, but they talk about it with me, which is great. And I said, well, you know, your experience and your training where you were, unfortunately those systems would want you to offer that diagnosis, but we don't do that here. Um, you need to learn the child a little bit more the way in which, you know, anxiety and depression manifest itself can look a lot differently for our children, differently for the black teens and black young men. And so we want to take our time and you want to understand that these diagnoses can follow them. Um when you talk about like the you know the you know, the mezzo but when you talk about the macrosystems and let's say they apply for some government job and there goes oh they were diagnosed with anxiety and conduct disturbance and it's no so you know it's really about looking at the child holistically any client holistically and giving considerations to all things about that client before offering a diagnosis
0: right and a lot of our young people well we've all right experienced a shared global trauma of the pandemic and a lot of our young people are dealing with PTSD that's not being diagnosed as PTSD and it's being diagnosed as behavioral disorders, right? So that's another piece to it of, and and I'm appreciative, you know, that you're being very intentional in your supervision with your clinicians, like just take a step back, right? This whole child model, everyone talks about whole child model, but be intentional when you're looking at that. There's a number of experiences that our young people have gone through depression and anxiety, and specifically, how it shows up differently in Black women. I think it's an important mm-hmm. conversation. I think it's something that needs to be had more often. So I just want to get your perspective with this and what's showing up in your practice.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I had initially, I, I should say at the very beginning. At the very beginning, I was still, you know, it has to be weekly sessions. It was not weekly sessions. This isn't going to work you know, because I was trained that way. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, you know, it was so important that I had surrounded myself with other Black clinicians to process this. And um, whether they responded or we had realized that there needs to be more flexibility. And, you know, I was a bit rigid. I think culturally that had helped. But what I did realize was that there needed to be more flexibility surrounding engaging in psychotherapy, because what we're doing is, is that this person is now faced with a mirror of reflecting on their trauma. Mm -hmm. And that also the way that we, we engage as a people, we have to be mindful of the genetic components of our moms, our dads, their trauma, our grandparents' trauma, our great-great-grandparents' trauma. And when you if, you, if we were to look at, is it Pavlov, the conditioning? Is that who, right? So when you think of the conditioning, right? And the animal as they, you know, gets conditioned to behave in a certain way, if you, but no one ever talked about when that animal became a parent. And how they were engaging with their child. Right. And so you have that. Then you have that child. Who's being parent by this traumatized. Parent. Having their own sets of trauma. So there's layers of trauma. Even if they didn't experience it. You know it's learned behavior. As if you're always in a state of. Fight, flight and fright. And so. It is culturally is different. We are and I'm not excluding anyone else, but we are very much expressive. So rhythms, music really speaks to us in a way that maybe it doesn't others, right? So we use a lot of percussions, you know, even African, you know, of of those that are African descent drummings. Um people realize that sound baths are um helpful and so A lot of cultures, black and brown cultures, we know that sounds and the vibrations that comes through our entire bodies. And so we need to be engaged in therapy differently and because the way in which we heal is different, the way that we need our healing or how would I say the tools of healing needs to be customized in a way that reflects us culturally. So we may have a client, maybe they are, you know, generations of Americans. I may ask them, do you have any family from the South? You know, what generations were from the South? What areas of the South? We talk about music. So, and how are you connected to that? Some may reconnect it. Me, may reconnect to that certain music because the South does have different music than we do, and then when you think about the history of the music, you know they may say, "Well, oh, well, my parent, whatever, used to play this instrument, and I was taught the instrument, but I never played it before." Oh, okay. So, have you engaged with it? Are you listening to music that that instrument is the primary instrument being played? And integrating that into our healing. Anxiety and depression, It. so when we talk about anger, boy, you know, I, when I do supervision, I, I share with the staff, I said, anger is not a symptom. It is a response. Correct. Right. Anger is a response to anxiety, depression, PTSD. That is what, so I, you know, I share with them, you don't want to look at the anger. You want to look at what happens in between because there's something that happens in between. It's just that it just goes very quickly to anger. And that's what you want to get to. And, you know, the angry black women, the angry black man, kind of a thing that, how we experienced? Girl, (laughs) I'm sorry, like. You know, they're like, are you angry? And I don't have a problem telling them, yes, I'm angry, but I am, I'm mostly sad. And I'm sad, I'm angry because you're not validating my sadness or what I'm going through. So what you're getting is, is your lack of validating my sadness or whatever the emotion is. And so you're getting anger. So what can that person, how are they going to respond to that? If I'm telling you, you're not validating. Now we have a tendency to not want to admit that we're sad because then oftentimes that makes us vulnerable. We are live, we always live in a society where we have this idea that we have to remain strong because a lot of times it's not validated. Case in point, I went to a doctor's appointment about two months ago. And I was sharing, you know, my, you know, my I had a lot of chest pains and things like that. And full transparency, it is a form of some, I don't even know that even with my therapist, you know, I'm like, there must be some trauma, but don't know where it's coming from. And so I was able to connect it because I'm a therapist. But if I go to the doctor and I'm telling you that I'm having these chest pains and you're brushing it off, like I'm just making no sense, then I'm going to get angry. And I did. I was like, like I'm telling you, like I'm a of you know, stable mind. I'm telling you even if I, even if I wasn't, you have to validate my experience and take it from there. you know? And so, you know, our manifestations of anxiety and depression can look a lot different when you look at race. when you look at ancestral traumas, generational traumas, it really requires a clinician like ourselves, um, or those who are um, specializing in somatics, which I want to get into soon enough, I kind of think I am, but I haven't done any training on it. When you look at that, um, then you will begin to accept that anxiety and depression manifest differently in us, and that the approach needs to be different.
0: I think, you know, initially, everyone thought, oh, well, you're not sad and depression is more than <laughs> sadness, right? <laughs> Anxiety yeah. is more than biting of your nails or or what has been put in the media, right? And I think when you, the strong black woman schema, right? That has been such a detriment to black women because um, there's this expectation that nothing is supposed to be wrong and that you can handle anything. Or we begin to be in situations where we sell silence which is very detrimental to our mental health as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, I don't want to share anything, whether it's I'm upset or if I'm feeling sad because it's going to be problematic for me. So I think having these conversations and think clinicians, especially if you're working with women, black women, taking the time to learn and research and understand how it manifests. Anxiety a lot of times can also manifest as irritability, right? And we, a lot of times, have been taught, right, generalizing symptoms of all communities, which has been very problematic. And that's what causes clients to feel, or patients to feel like, you don't don't understand me because we've been taught to just this generalized of, well, this is what anxiety should look like. So you're assuming that, you're thinking that this is what's supposed to look like in black women or other communities that you're working with. And that's extremely problematic.
1: Right. And you know, being able to just so for me, like, you know, when I was talking about the chest pains as I was exploring it, I realized that I had started my private practice in the heart at the beginning of the it was during the pandemic. And I was into full healer mode i was and but then i realized there were parts of my personal life that i remember because i was so so dealing it was just putting out fires for people and now i'm kept my brain is catching up and now my body is responding yes but you know and so people don't realize you know when you have aging parents so man listen they were like, I said, look, I wouldn't say child. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you got your parents. They had their faculties, but they needed nurturance and yes. care. And they're scared. They're like, this is not the way my life is supposed to end. Like, we're not, you know, we're not dying. Thank God. So I then had to say, oh, wow, I got to go back to 2020 and take care of myself <laughs> and, and catch up, right? Yeah. So that's how it manifested for me because I was being a strong, that strong black woman, keep it going, waking up, going to bed, having a session at nine, 10 o'clock in the night. That was just crazy, you know? And I, it, my body, it paid for it, but I had the wherewithal to say, I need to deal with that. And I need to connect with people that understood that. Yes. Right? And so not everyone has that.
0: I think, you know, when we are doing this work, it's important to not work in a silo and to be in community, positive community, and where you can kind of make phone calls or just connect. So that way, one, checking on each other, but sharing resources and just kind of staying in the know. It's sometimes people want to work on their own, especially in a private practice and not really connecting with other people. And that's not a good way to run, I feel, my opinion, to run a practice. You should, you know, have other clinicians that you can consult with, um, be in community with. So that way, you know, you're not just doing this work because it's a lot of work. We're taking in a lot, right? And sometimes we're not always taking care of ourselves. Because either we don't want to just take that moment where we're sitting with ourselves, or it's just like, I have to maintain this, I have to maintain that. So um, being in community and having another clinician that you can consult with, um, that you feel, of course, is professional and ethical, I think is always key, especially when doing this work. When you talked about, you know, depression and anxiety, you know, and how it looks different, what, what suggestions would you give to, you know, Black women that, Maybe dealing with depression and anxiety, self care tips. I know you talked about sound baths, somatic work, or what are those things that you have suggested that can be helpful?
1: Yeah, you know when I when I think about when I meet with some of my clients, and and you know this Tracy, you can tell when someone's not breathing, and they're like, oh, yes, God. I'm like I can tell your body, you are not, you're not, your you know, shoulders are up tight, yep. you look tight. Um, I said, don't let this virtual thing fool you. I can see it. And um, practicing breath work. Um, and I know there's a tendency where they're like, it's not working. I said, well, it's not supposed to work the first time. You tried it. <laughs> so, you know, giving yourself grace, doing 30 seconds of breath work. Um, there's a tendency to want to work out, and, but not breath work. I'm like, but if you work out, you will, you can potentially hurt yourself. Correct. You're if not you're not eating well, sure. so your yeah. muscles are so tensed that you can hurt your muscles. So that's where the practicing breath work comes in. Reengaging with your creative side, whatever that may look like. Um, some people it's cooking and perhaps integrating something healthy in your cooking, finding out I know people hate kale, but finding out, you know, that good kale um, recipe or whatever the healthy recipe is, um, getting creative colors. We are colorful people. Introduce colors into your meal. Get as creative as you want, just like you're doing makeup or someone's beating your face, as we call it. Get creative with that. Also look at into, so tapping, you know, um, is another thing. Getting to tapping, of course, mental health treatment. You should definitely <laughs> engage in mental health treatment. And if breathing is hard, you know. Like you have your mindful mindfulness. Is it the mindfulness podcast? Engage in spaces where you're guided in your breath work. That is so so important. Um, and also, you know, when we talk about self care. Um, like if you see my nails now, they're probably chipped, but I like to use colors for my nails. Um, Same color, yellow. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Look at that. Both yellow. (laughs) Um, You know, you're working from home, do your own manicure and engage in colors on yourself. I can go on and on about different things because not everything works for the same person. Also, there are apps that persons can use, which I'm sure you refer people to that engages in sound bath, that engages you in a meditation and inspirational, um, journaling, right? So we you know we talk about journaling. Some people say to me, uh, well, I don't feel like writing today, all right, but maybe journal once a week. It doesn't have to be every day. Um, I think a lot of times, like you mentioned, people are on social media and when they see these influencers or what have you, they feel that they have to adapt to the exact thing. And you really don't. You can customize it to make it look like what fits your mental and emotional needs and your bandwidth, your level of tolerance in that moment.
0: Thank you. And I think it's, I'm glad you mentioned breathwork. I actually took the time to be trained in breathwork. I was the only Black woman during the training, but that's a whole nother, right? To talk on that one. What I usually do is I always start off my sessions with doing some breath work. Breath of joy is my favorite one, but it's not, you know, it depends on, but I will I can turn on a session and I can look and I was like, you know what? Before we begin, let's just do some breath work. Cause I see it in their body. I see it in a facial expression. And then, you know, of course I'll start to check in how's everything. And how did that feel to just do that release? Cause a lot of times, you know, we do whole things, but there are a number of things that people can do to kind of, the self-care. I think for Black women, when you're feeling a certain way, no self-doubt, right? Honor, like, I, this is how I feel, and this is how you feel. Because we're supposed to have a range of emotions. We are not robots. And there's nothing wrong with speaking to someone, getting a referral. There's different sites where you can look up clinicians of color, but don't hold it in. Because I think a lot of times society expects to holding it and push forward and push through. And no, sometimes it's just having some conversations, working with a professional and just opening up about your feelings. That is the first step. So I I think it's, I always want to say that because it's doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you to be working with a, you know, licensed professional. Sometimes you just need help to kind of work things through. Sometimes you need more higher level of care, but I think it's important to understand it. Just don't deny your feelings.
1: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. That part where you mentioned about allowing yourself to have ranges of emotions, you know, and it's so important to engage in mental health so that you can pinpoint what those emotions are. we, um in that you know black strong black woman schema that we hold on that some of us hold on to those emotions can get lost right and um taking time to explore those emotions and feel okay with feeling them that may result in some crying but it also results in some joy
0: yes you know? release
1: release yes you know there's you know, oftentimes, even when I was young, I was like, I don't want to cry. I don't like crying in front of people. Now, child, I cry. I, I just I just cry. And- you gotta let I, it, gotta I let it out. Media, and I was crying because I was happy. And a family member was like, okay, but the next time you go on, don't cry. And I was just like, why would you tell me that? Like, I'm a human being. It's okay. I don't care that people see me crying. And I even think that even as- clinicians and to each his own. There's a tendency to not want persons to see our range of emotions, Mm -hmm. but for me, I'm okay with that sometimes because then I don't want persons to believe that I'm like this all the time. If I'm comfortable with shedding a tear or expressing a range of emotions, I'm going to do just that because when you engage with me, Know that I'm a human being. And if I cancel, that's another thing. Show some grace, child. If someone cancels, <laughs> that, that's you know, that's your rationale. Like, okay, that um this is not a good therapist. Uh maybe I canceled because I needed a self-care day. Like I was are humans.
0: We are humans. Right? Yeah.
1: So hmm
0: Well, I always one, want, I wanna thank you for engage me in this great conversation. I think this is a number of things and I'm definitely want to have you come back cuz there's so many other things that we can do our mini TED talks on. Um but I always end my when I do interviews cuz my name of the, the the excuse me the name of my podcast is The Positive Professional. So I always end with asking um what makes you a positive professional?
1: Hmm. My, you know, clinical supervision comes to mind. And I have moved away from that your personal self is not involved. And I don't believe that. And when I do supervision, based on the responses that I receive, that they feel as though they are receiving compassionate supervision. And I share with them that you are human beings. Part of the work that we're doing, we're doing very intimate, personal healing work. So the idea that that your personal self is not involved is just ridiculous to me, because that's part of the reason why you decide to have a clinical, intimate, therapeutic relationship with another human being, partly because of who you are. And so... Um, I strive to offer a truly positive interaction with my clinicians and in a way that is not only learning, it is, um, really offering them the opportunity to self-actualize, um, and identify their greatness and to, um, I always tell them that I would want you to be better than me, whatever that is. And because if you're a new clinician or you're a younger clinician, you have to evolve. And so for me, that's positive because, you know, I know that, you know, depending on your number of years of experience, receiving really good, wholehearted clinical supervision is, (laughs) Lucky.
0: <laughs> well, that could be another TED Talk, right? Because that's a huge, <laughs> girl. Um, yeah, that's a huge problem for many reasons. Um, and uh, yeah, clinical supervision is important. It's something that should continue to happen, right? Because we're working with other humans and things come up and you want to make sure that you are maintaining your ethical boundaries. But maybe that could be another <laughs> mm round table conversation with that before I end if sh- I am going to have of course your website information in the notes for this podcast but if a parent or somebody's interested in reaching out to you have questions about your services what's the best way to to reach you
1: sure um our website is com. that's o-r-c-h-a-r-d blue as in the color, counseling.com. You can also call us at area code 516-200-1174. You can also text us at that number. And the email is info at orchardbluecounseling.com. Check us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can also reach out to us via there when you click on the book or the message us, it will take you directly to our email address. And so um, you can also book a free 15-minute phone consultation um, if you choose so, and you can access the booking link through our website.
0: Thank you so much, Serene, for agreeing to do this interview with me, this means a lot. I think it's great to see two two divas from Queens. Right? Hey. <laughs> and we are now um, clinical social workers. So thank you so very much. I am going to invite you back to so many other things that we can talk yes. about. But thank you again for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening and supporting this podcast and make sure you're clicking the like and subscribe button you can also follow me on twitter and instagram stay safe be well and don't forget to be the best version of you